0: Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact, the podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. My name is Eli. I'm Irene. I'm Alice. And today we're talking about the trial of Stella Bolton and Fanny Park. We have some content warnings for this episode. The episode will contain potential misgendering, depending on your understanding of Fanny and Stella's identities. It will also contain mentions of sex work, including legal prosecution of sex workers, period-typical and modern-day misogyny, homophobia and transphobia, including legal prosecution and imprisonment of queer people, discussions of pornography and explicit discussions of sex, discussions... Oh, I just want to read that line again. (laughs) There will also be... Sexual assault, specifically done and condoned by medical and legal authorities. Use of outdated language for queer people and sex workers. And mention of a possible suicide and a possible death from an STI. If any of that sounds like something that you would rather not listen to, feel free to skip this episode as always, and listen to one of our other episodes for other horrifying things that have happened. Before we begin, I also want to talk about our sources first, at more length than normal. But to do that, I need to tell you basically who Fanny and Stella are. So Fanny and Stella are two young people, assigned male at birth, who habitually dressed in women's clothes, went by women's names, generally presented as female in their personal lives, as well as professionally as actresses on the stage. One night while they were at the theatre, as the audience, not on stage, Mm -hmm. they were arrested for being in women's clothes, and they went to trial. It's primarily because of this trial that we know anything about them, so the trial testimonies and so forth were recorded word for word, which was common at the time, but what isn't common is that those testimonies survive, but luckily in this case they have. And the trial records are held by the British National Archives in Kew unluckily, it has not been digitized and it isn't published. The same is generally true of other primary sources, such as their letters, about 30 of which survive newspaper articles from the time and so on. Mm-hmm. So there are a ton of primary sources for this, but I couldn't access any of them. Oh. Yeah, that's how it is sometimes. There are secondary sources on them. There's a few journal articles, and they will be mentioned quite frequently in, like, just general books about queerness in the 19th century, Mm -hmm. or 19th century Britain, I should say. However, the only real in-depth treatment of them and their lives in the trial is a book by Neil McKenna entitled Fanny and Stella, The Young Men Who Shocked Victorian England.
1: Well, that was his choice to start out with. I remember Neil from Oscar Wilde episode.
0: Yeah, so... ah, <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> Neil McKenna has written two books, one about Oscar Wilde called The Secret Life of Oscar Wilde, and one about Fanny and Stella. From those titles, you can tell that he has a certain tone in his yeah. books. His background as a writer, apart from that, is as a journalist. He isn't a historian and has no historical training. His style is, as you would expect, not a dry academic style. He writes in quite a, like, there's probably a better word for this, but just like a sort of fiction-like style. He'll use, say, for example, like the colloquial language of the time to try and evoke the setting in which he's writing in. He also writes, I can't remember regarding the Oscar Wilde book, but at least in the book about Fanny and Stella in third person close. So different parts are essentially from different people's points of view.
2: Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, which is
0: interesting. And I I don't think to be clear, because I am going to say a lot of negative things about Neil and his book in this episode, (laughs) that all of that thus far is inherently a bad thing. So Neil McKenna from interviews that I've read and listened to with him has had a fair amount of negative feedback about this book. And he feels quite strongly about literary conventions around historical non fiction and biographies Mm -hmm. being overly restrictive and ridiculous and so forth and i agree with that like we are doing a podcast here obviously we have to agree that opening up the ways in which we talk about history is a good thing and i do think that some of the choices he makes makes history more accessible and more entertaining and that's a good thing yeah However. Yeah, however. <laughs> so when Neil directly quotes from a primary source, he cites it in a footnote at the back of the book. Oh, that's good. However, these are the only citations he makes. So pages and pages will go by without any citations. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for example, there's a chapter about Fanny's early life, and it has two citations, neither of which are actually to do really with the text. like. He uses a quote from some piece of literature or another to kind of set the scene at the start, Mm -hmm. one citations for that, you know. So then like 10 pages go past and I'm like, well, how do you know? Again, having read and listened to interviews with Neil McKenna, he has received criticism for this and had people say, for example, that he just made a lot of the book up and he vehemently disagrees with that. He says that he did a lot of research, more research than could have gone into the book, that everything in the book is based on fact and he has made nothing up. And this could be true, but I don't know. Yeah, you just can't yeah. check. Yeah, and I'm not going to take his word for it. Does he at least have, like, a bibliography at the back, maybe? He has an acknowledgements section or, a you know, like a, a note sort of saying, like you know, I'm indebted to like the British National Archives, yada, yada, yada. So it's clear some of the sources that are used. And he does cite the quotes and so forth. So Mm. he'll say like, this comes from so-and-so's deposition at the trial. So you can work out which source some of the information comes from, but there is no bibliography now.
1: So this really just isn't an academic text in any way. No. And
0: you can't really use it as one very effectively. Well, I'm about to, so. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's go. So yeah, unfortunately, this is really the only book to turn to if you want to read about Panic and Stella. So I've read it and I'm about to present an episode (laughs) based on it. I am grateful that he did write it. Like we wouldn't be doing the episode if he hadn't. But also it's going to be a bit of an interesting episode, maybe. There are various times throughout this episode where I'm going to draw attention to like, where did Neil get this from? Or Mm -hmm. kind of discuss why this information is in the book and so forth. But every single time I state a fact that isn't adequately sourced, I haven't mentioned that because i would just be constantly beginning every sentence with neil alleges or apparently this and that's just not a way to do an engaging episode of anything yeah so keep that in mind feel free to interject at any point if you would like to know what i think i'm talking about (laughs) okay i am also interested to see how this comes out because When I was taking notes on this, virtually all of the kind of like colourful detail about their personalities and the times was detail that I didn't feel like I could really take down because like for all I knew it was made up. And so I'm interested to see if this comes out as a very like stark and boring (laughs) episode, frankly. We'll (laughs) see. I don't think for the record that he has just wholesale made parts of it up. Mm -hmm. I think essentially what he's done is he has read sources are there and has kind of like extrapolated to what he believes is a reasonable degree Mm -hmm. based on that. And like people disagree on what sources mean. Yeah. And, stuff like yeah. That.
1: and it's much harder to decide whether you agree when you can't tell where they got their information and their opinions from.
0: Yes. I also, before we begin the episode proper, wanted to do the obligatory these people are gender diverse. So let's talk about pronouns section. Okay. Yes. So if you remember the subtitle of McKenna's book, Yes. was The Young Men Who Shocked Victorian England. He often does use she, her pronouns for Fanny and Silla in the book. Um, mm-hmm. This is generally when it's from the point of view of someone who would have used she, her pronouns for them, most obviously them themselves. When mm-hmm. it's from the point of view of someone else, such as one of the police officers, for example, he uses he, him pronouns.
1: Okay. Within his writing style, I feel like that that makes sense. sense.
0: Yeah, sure. So I wasn't really sure... You know, because he doesn't really want to break his own fourth wall and interject his own opinion Mm, in any kind of straightforward mm. way. I wasn't really sure if he understood them to be men or not from the book. In the citations and so forth, he will, for example, if he's citing a letter from Stella, he will use her birth name, which we're not going to use. And from interviews and so forth with him, it does seem that he just understands them to be men. Okay. And this is generally how they are understood in everything else that I've read about them. And the reasons for this isn't because they've kind of like thought about the situation and come to that conclusion. The reason for that, basically, to be blunt, seems to be, well, they had penises. So obviously on this podcast, we tend to look at things a little differently. <laughs> that is our job. Yeah. I mean, that's not a job. But
1: <laughs> we like to think about gender here on Queer as Fact. Yes. It is true.
0: So we will return to this at the end in more depth our trans and trans related episodes just kind of structure themselves that way but to spoil it i'm not fully confident in talking about how they identified because of the nature of the sources not only neil mckenna's book but also even if i had access to all of the primary sources i suspect that it would remain kind of ambiguous because most everything is from a courtroom setting yeah you know that's going to have slight veneer of bias over it in terms of how people talk about these things So we'll return to it at the end and see what we think. I am mostly going to be using she, her pronouns to talk about them. This isn't because I believe them to definitely be trans women, but because we do know that these are pronouns that they used for each other and for themselves. Um, I think they-them pronouns would also be very easily defensible. If you prefer to use pronouns that indicate the general uncertainty we have over their identities, Mm -hmm. how do the two of you feel about that?
1: I feel like I just really can't really say anything until we've heard the episode. So if she-her is what you've used, then let's use she-her. And if we discuss at the end and decide that they-them was the right call, then next time we mention them we'll use they them
2: yeah i feel like at this stage the only things i know about fanny and stella is that they presented in a feminine way that's pretty much all i know and use she her for themselves yeah so that seems like a reasonable call here
0: i guess my question is less like so tell me what you think their identities are and more do you feel like the methodology is a strong word but like do you think the reasoning that i've given you there is fair enough
2: yeah, I think my instinct is always to go with pick a pronoun that we know this person has
0: used. Hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I think that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Stella was born in 1848. She was a sickly child, meaning her mother was very protective of her. And from childhood, she's very fond of dressing up and acting in little plays that they'd put on in the household, always wanting to play female parts. Once when her grandmother was staying with them, she dressed up as the maid and poured their drinks at dinner, and the grandmother did not notice. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's
1: quite cute. So she not only likes acting, but she's very good at it.
0: Oh, Yeah. <laughs>
2: How old am I picturing this child at this point? I don't know. She must be reasonably old to pass as the maid. Like, I assume the maid wasn't, like, seven.
0: (laughs) Oh, God. I don't know.
1: (laughs) I don't know how the Victorian era was. Maybe the maid was seven.
0: (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) The family was fairly comfortable financially when she was young, but as she got older, her father's business suffered uh, and by 18 she's obliged to look for a profession mm-hmm. um so she only wants to be an actress she wants nothing to do with like a career as her parents would sort of understand it in like yeah. the law or something stella ends up working as a clerk in a bank for a while around the same time her health gets worse and she's absent quite often from the job and it's heavily implied that this is on purpose Okay. And Relatable. eventually she <laughs> leaves her position there and returns to just thinking full-time about how she's going to be an actress and trying to enter that world. So all that information so far comes from Stella's mother's deposition at the trial. We have a fairly similar story for Fanny in Neil McKenna's biography, basically that she's very feminine and she loves to act from childhood and dresses up and plays female roles around the home, but no source is given. Okay, so is he just
1: like, true for Stella? Probably true for Fanny.
0: Yeah, I mean, I assume it's either he has a bunch of primary sources on this that he doesn't see fit to share with, or mm. more likely he knows that she's feminine and that she's an actress and thinks chances are... She was like this from childhood. Yeah. Yeah. We do know that she had a brother, Harry, who was also queer. Uh, wow. And we know this because he has his own court case. Um, <laughs> Being arrested for allegedly coming on to a member of the police force, essentially. He's arrested a few times, actually, and eventually ends up fleeing off into exile to avoid a prison sentence. Do you know where he flees to? Just, like, some random small town in Scotland. Okay. Yeah. In Neil McKenna's book, Harry's the one who introduces Fanny to, like what being gay means and to what queer subculture exists at the time and who kind of gives her the name fanny and so forth
2: Mm -hmm. like you have no idea
0: really no idea we don't know how stella and fanny meet but they end up being part of a circle of other people like themselves so people assigned male at birth who are very feminine who dress as women much of the time who act and who do sex work stella and fanny in particular though are very close they call each other sister oh yes Which is nice. So they spend a lot of time socializing within this group, and they'll, like, go out, and they'll go to the theater, and they'll go to, like, drag balls and things like that, which we'll talk about a little later. They also spend time at Stella's house, Interestingly, and the mom talks about that.
2: So
1: is Stella's family just kind of okay with Stella and her friend hanging out as women in the house?
0: So when they hang out at Stella's house, they don't dress as women. Okay. In the trial, as I've mentioned, Stella's mother does testify, Mm -hmm. and part of what that last trial does is to kind of try and make Stella and her life and, like, how she dresses and so forth look okay, look, like, socially acceptable, by having her mother, who is this like, you know, like middle aged, respectable woman, mm-hmm. be in on it.
1: Ah oh, yeah. So
0: yeah. she says, for example, like, Oh yeah, you know, like I always knew that my son, like, liked to play these roles and we thought it was harmless and he we was so good at it and kind of saying like, oh yeah, his friends were around all the time and they were like really lovely and Yeah, you know, like lovely young men. And there's two quotes like about this that you Neil know, McKenna gives where first of all she says like Oh, yeah, yeah. He did tell me that he went by the nickname Stella with his friends. And also, oh, I might have given them a dress once or twice. Uh-huh. And then Neil McKenna kind of adds in the pro section, so not in direct quotes, and with no citation to back it up, that actually she gave tons of dresses and also she called Stella, Stella herself.
1: Okay, but we just don't know um, if that's...
0: Yeah, we'll get into uh, in a little bit as well. Like, She has a few significant relationships and Neil McKenna also kind of presents it that like Stella's mother understands that these are romantic prospects and okay. is trying to like make a match for her daughter almost. And I'm just like, would love to know more about this, if this is hmm. actually the dynamic that they had. But, like, maybe they didn't.
2: I have to say, though, even, like, aside from what Neil McKenna said, like, the quotes you gave where Hmm. she was like, yeah, I knew that was the nickname and I did lend them some dresses. She sounds quite
0: chill about it. I mean, I guess, like, if you wanted to play the devil's advocate you could say that maybe really they were like look your son's in a lot of trouble and if you say this it'll get you out of it but yeah like I think that does point towards her being accepting of her child's nature to some degree but there's a big difference between being like oh yes you know like I'm proud of the fact that you are becoming more successful as an actor and like don't mind you know how you present yourself with your friends and being like this is my daughter and i am going to make her a match with a lord yeah yeah you know, yeah, so, yeah, right? yeah yeah those are two very different things and i want to know which like yeah 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 there's a bit as well where so like stella starts seeing this guy and he is the third son i believe of a duke and it has kind of like stella being like oh like it was possible that she might be a duchess one day now And it's like, what are we actually understand is meant to be behind that, like, off-the-cuff remark? Yeah. Yeah, Like, what? Yeah.
1: Is the idea that she's going to, like, fake some papers and just get Get married as a woman?
0: Yeah, or is it just that, like, by being in a relationship with this man who could eventually be a duke, you could conceptualize yourself as a duchess? Or, like, what... Yeah. Um, there were a lot of, like, interesting things like that in there that weren't really expanded all that much, and yeah. 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 So I've mentioned that they're both actresses. They both act in what seem to be fairly, like, small-time productions – And they're never, like, huge successes. They always play women. Stella will play, like, young, beautiful heroines, and Fanny will play sort of older women, like, dowagers, sterner women. Mm -hmm. There's a lot in the book kind of, like, assessing their appearances and how attractive they are and so forth. And it's, like, generally the case that, like, Stella is more traditionally feminine in her appearance. Mm-hmm. And there's just, like, a lot of stuff about, like, how she's more beautiful and so forth. And You weren't super about it? I wasn't super about it. I don't have any, like, notes or anything about it. I was just kind of yeah. like, that seems a bit unnecessary. Mm-hmm. I guess, like, again, even if I'm not saying they're definitely trans women, I think taking them and kind of like assessing how well they quote-unquote pass and how masculine their features are is still yeah. kind of trans misogynistic i mean yeah no. i mean yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah frankly
2: i feel like doing that to anyone trans or not is a weird yeah, yeah
0: like it's obviously like thing to do. yeah a bit messed up but i yeah i guess it's yeah. that thing where i feel like and i'll get into this a bit later that whether or not they're trans they are two people society views as men presenting in a feminine way. And I feel like a lot of how they get talked about is really redolent of trans misogyny, like both at the time and today. Mm.
1: So you've read Neil's Oscar Wilde book, obviously. Yes. Does Neil assess men in similar ways? Like obviously he would have talked about, say, Oscar Wilde's
0: lovers.
2: Yeah, he does. Yeah. Okay
0: i don't know whether that's reassuring or not yeah Well, i mean he understands funny and stellar to be men so i guess that's not that surprising um i mean i haven't read the oscar wilde book for like six months now so i'm not super but i think like even oscar he's quite like descriptive in a dodgy way in a yeah like very unflinching in his descriptions of oscar's like aging body and so forth Mm -hmm. um and i'm just gonna like oh okay (laughs) we're doing that i guess So yeah, as I said, they're never massively successful, but Mm -hmm. they do quite well in the roles that they do get, at least some of the time. So they'll be like very well applauded and occasionally have standing ovations and people will give them bouquets and so have favorable reviews. So we have reviews of people being like, you know, Stella or Fanny was amazing in this role as whoever and like, you know, good job.
1: So when they're on stage in these roles, Mm. if you, say, looking at the cast list program or whatever for these roles, are they listed by male names?
0: This wasn't explicitly said anywhere, but, like, it seems as if that would be the case. Okay. Like, they're not, like, trying to pass as cisgender women in order to get into this acting profession. Like, it's quite normal Mm -hmm. for people's society views as men to play women's roles on the stage. I guess it's that kind of thing where, like, it's fine entertainment, but the people themselves are sometimes looked at... A little askance mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so. yeah so what sorry i'm sure you said this what year are we in so stella's born in 1848 fanny's born in 1847 we're in like the mid to late 60s yeah 1860s yeah. obviously <laughs> sorry that was a pilot <laughs> statement and then the like early 70s towards the end of this Okay. As I also briefly mentioned, both Stella and Fanny were involved with sex work. We know this because, for example, Stella was arrested twice in 1867 for being drunk and soliciting men in public while dressed as a woman. It's not something that seemed to really come up in the court cases, okay. uh, but it's something that Neil presents as just being like a part of their life regularly for quite some time.
1: So what's the legality of sex work?
0: Well, if you're someone assigned male at birth dressing as a woman... It's illegal mm-hmm. because it's illegal for you to have sex with a man.
1: Oh, yeah, no, that's true. That's the story. True, yeah.
0: Neil McKenna kind of depicts Stella as being quite promiscuous from a fairly young age and just kind of like sliding into sex work through that. Mm-hmm. But you really don't know what yeah. happened. And there's also some stuff in the book about how like they both present as women whilst working and how mm-hmm. some of their clients don't know that they're not cisgender women. Oh, yeah. So, as we've mentioned, they both do seem to be interested in men romantically and sexually. Stella, in particular, has a whole bunch of boyfriends that we know about. Fanny, we have less evidence of romantic involvements in. You Neil know, McKenna says this is because she's not really attractive enough to get men to date her.
2: I don't know why people persist in believing that everyone chooses their romantic partners based on physical attractiveness in that like straightforward
0: way mm. it's probably also worth mentioning that neoma McKenna, like from the interviews like he's like oh yeah like love was a battlefield for her like she had to really struggle to get dates and so forth and like she's the one that i feel is like much more like me in that respect so he's like fond of her on the basis of it but he's also like immensely catty about it and it was just like okay that's so weird it's quite weird yeah But does he even know this why did he just look at a picture of her and be like it was harder for her to get dates i mean i think it's a thing where we have this like whole list of men that stella was with and we Mm. don't really have anyone that fanny was involved with and obviously like there are reasons why that could happen outside of no one will date fanny
1: yeah like maybe
0: fanny is just more private Yeah, maybe. She does sometimes wear black morning clothes and will call herself the widowed Mrs. Fanny Graham, but there's not any evidence that Mr. Graham ever existed. <laughs> okay,
2: maybe she just doesn't want to date anyone.
0: Yeah, maybe that's just like a way to keep people away. Yeah, you just no. Go that's around. interesting. Actually. Yeah. yeah, maybe. Yeah. I mean, I was just kind of like, that's so dramatic, and I love it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, <laughs> I didn't go much further than that with it. That is also dramatic. But yeah, so we are now going to talk about this third son of a duke. So in 1867, Stella and her mother go to a dinner party held at a friend of the family's house. Lord Arthur Pelham Clinton is also invited to this, and he and Stella must have been quite taken with each other because he asks if he could visit them at their home sometimes. Don't know a lot about Arthur apart from the fact that he's in a fair amount of debt. He has a habit of buying really expensive gifts that Mm -hmm. he apparently doesn't really plan on paying for. (laughs) Okay. Um, Okay. So we know, for example, that he tries to provide a very expensive catered dinner for Stella's coming-of-age party, despite the fact that the Boltons have already made plans for this and have declined it. (laughs) And it's quite awkward socially. (laughs) Clearly, a relationship between Stella and Arthur begins at some point because they end up living together as husband and wife in a boarding house. Oh, Oh, okay. okay. Yes. (laughs) I realize that that's escalated quickly, but I really am pulling from very little here. So we know that they're living together as husband and wife because Stella signs letters from the time as Stella Clinton. In a letter that Fanny wrote to Arthur, she refers to herself as Arthur's uh, sister-in-law and she mentions Stella and Arthur's matrimonial squabbles. So that is well and truly the arrangement. So they are married. They're married, which is nice. They're yeah. married. Um, I
2: wonder if they had a wedding.
0: Oh yeah, me too. I like,
2: wonder if he bought an expensive candle dinner
0: for it. <laughs> probably did.
1: He couldn't afford. Did they have like diamond engagement rings? That thing back then. I have no idea. I'm just picturing like the tacky diamond engagement yeah, rings yeah, you might do, have heard. Yeah.
0: There was never any mention of her having a like ostentatious ring either in sources that Neil McKenna brought up or just in him, like, deciding to make one up. Yeah. Anyway, it's still probably shiny and tacky. Anyway, yeah. Fanny often comes to stay with them and will sleep in the little bedroom off of the main one. We know a bit about the living arrangements there from testimony from the maids who worked there. Mm-hmm. You know, so saying that Stella and Arthur slept in the main bed together and that Fanny would sleep in the little side room. They also say that Fanny and Stella were, like, always dressed as women, and that the maids were constantly confused about whether Stella and Fanny were men or women, and what was going on.
1: Okay. Okay.
0: Yeah. Arthur likes Stella and Fanny. He's interested in the theatre. He wants to be an actor, and so he and Stella act in plays together. He'll be the hero, and Stella will be the damsel. <laughs> Very good. Mm. So they tour around England a little bit.
2: I was about to ask whether you were meaning them acting in plays, like, professionally on the stage, or whether you meant, like, in their lounge room they acted out little plays together. Oh, that's true.
0: I mean, they probably did. Yeah. Which sounds, like, quite fun. Yeah. Yeah. But no, they do also act in plays professionally together, so they go on a little, like, tour to Scarborough together to perform. Some plays mm-hmm. and they get quite good reviews there people are very interested in them not much of this sort of thing really comes to scarborough and arthur takes her out on the town while they're there with her dressed as a woman and they just you know go to the theater mm-hmm. and so forth and one man calls the police on them because of this but okay. no one's arrested goes okay okay all right okay. yeah they leave scarborough So one of their friends, Carlotta, holds a drag ball. So to be clear, Carlotta is one of their friends who is also assigned male at birth, but uses a female name and dresses in women's clothes and so forth. And she's holding a drag ball. It's going to be great. So this is
2: obviously quite a big community.
0: So of the drag balls that he mentioned, they seemed like they had maybe like 30 to 50 people at them. So they're not, like, massive, but there is a, like, small underground community, at least, going on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, And sometimes they have parties, as all good small underground communities do. (laughs) Yes. These, like, underground balls that this community holds are generally quite secretive as you can imagine so for example they might require a password to enter which <laughs> um, we know from like police reports from the time police records from a few years after stella and fanny's arrest describe one such party that they broke up where they put black crepe over the windows and the only musician was a blind accordionist <laughs> oh that's <my God. laughs> great yeah it's just pretty great i feel like you know if you were there and you couldn't see what was going on it would still be kind of clear what was going on from how everyone spoke to each other yeah not, like, sure
2: yeah but i mean i guess even then like if you can't see and you don't know any of these people at least you won't be able to like yeah that's pick true. them from a lineup or something yeah else. i guess even
1: if you're like that was pretty queer you can't identify who was there yeah yeah yeah
0: So there's about 50 people at Carter's Ball. Edward Haxel, who's the proprietor of the hotel it was held in, says that it was very civilised, it was very proper. (laughs) Thanks, Um, Ed. McKenna gives us an alternative view of things.
1: How does Neil know? Was he there? Is he the (laughs) accordionist?
0: So the source Neil uses is a book called The Sins of the Cities of the Plain by Jack Saul. So this, to be clear, is a work of gay pornography. It's generally understood to be a fictionalized account of the life of a real male sex worker.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Wait, when was this book written? I can't remember exactly. It's still in the 19th century, but a bit after this, so maybe like 10 or 20 years later. Okay, that was most of my question, was like, is it kind of at the time? And yeah, it's kind of at the time. Yeah, like, we could do a whole other episode about this, but like I think the general consensus is that it's not written by this male sex worker. He was just okay. a notorious one at the time. He's involved in other queer court scandals okay. that go on at this time. There are factual inaccuracies from this person's real life that it, we can document. So, you know, like, it's not... It's a work of fiction. It's a work of fiction. <laughs> it's a work of fiction. But Stella and Fanny appear as characters in this book. By name? Yes. Huh. Yeah. And my thought on that is probably it's just because, like, they were famous figures from the queer underground.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And maybe the writer or writers of the book knew them. Mm-hmm. Maybe they didn't. But yeah, so in the book, Jack recounts how he noticed at the ball that Stella and Arthur were sneaking away from the party to go up to a private room together, and he follows them, and he's annoyed that he's, like, efforts to spy on them are prevented from them having gone into a room and locked the door. But then he goes into the room next to theirs and is pleased to see that he can literally peer through the keyhole and just <laughs> see what happens there.
1: Why does he want to do this? Does he give any reason for this? Or like,
0: nah. Because it's
2: a porn book.
0: They want to have a sex scene between Stella Bolton and Arthur Clinton from that famous trial. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that occurs. Like, it's put in Neil McKenna's book with, like, no real anything to indicate that he should just take this as, like, a factual recounting of what happened but yeah and then there is as you would expect from a pornographic work a like quite long elaborate sex scene where it describes stella having sex with her husband yeah and that's the thing that we have which (laughs) is interesting i guess which neil mckenna took as a source yeah he quotes from it at like some length paragraphs you know when you're writing a historical account and you realize your quotes become too long and you have to like indent it as its own paragraph yeah there's like three of those oh no yeah i basically just included that to be like this is what this mantle was acceptable to do <laughs> like why would you think that was a useful source i don't know you just look so sad for a moment i am sad he's the only person who's written a book about them and he's like this anyway one night they meet a young naive man called you okay I understand I don't pronounce the name you to your liking. You're to deal
1: with it. I mean, it's not wrong. It's just I was
2: a... just remembering how confused I was about Hugh Dispenser for some Oh, same. It. I had no idea what was going on with his name. I was like, "What is
0: this?" Name? The pirate. <laughs> that was a fun time. Surprisingly fun time for an episode that ended with someone being like violently murdered. Yeah. 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 So one night, Yu is out at the Surrey Theatre, and he's sitting in the theatre's bar, and he sees these two very feminine young men come in, as he understands them to be at that time. Yeah. Okay. So they are theoretically dressed as men Mm -hmm. at this point, but, like, their hair is very teased, and their jackets have been altered so that the waist comes in to make a kind of hourglass figure they're clean shaven which is not the norm at the time and is sometimes viewed on as being quite suspicious um you know their eyebrows are plucked things like that
1: i love how wildly we fluctuate from like decade to decade on whether men should have beards or not yeah and yeah. what
0: that indicates about like the moral <laughs> yeah. fortitude of our society <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah on a scale from ancient rome to victorian england (laughs) how gay is a beard (laughs) no not that kind I'm liking this, like, Victorian androgyny look, though. Just saying. Yeah, that sounds great. That sounds yeah, great. like... I'm sure was, they like, were, like, hot look. as anything, and yeah. I love it. And we should dress up as them for parties. Yeah. yeah. Hey, if we had our, like, costume party one day, we were, like, come as someone we done an episode on...
2: We should throw a queer respect party. As a fundraiser. As
0: a fundraiser. Who's coming to this? The theatre manager tells you that they are, quote, gay women dressed in men's clothes, so let's talk about gay, I guess. So gay doesn't mean like you know, like yeah. today. Homosexual. Gay. Homosexual, yes. <laughs> I'm like old. Homosexual? Oh, oh yeah, homosexual, homosexual. homosexual that's yeah, it. in a way. The gays. <laughs> yeah. So by gay women he doesn't mean like lesbians, like you know, the the gays, mm-hmm. like we mean it today in this podcast. Mm-hmm. You know. Not we. <laughs> uh I like think image of not lesbians to not ask three like, We're not lesbians, not. I I know we're not lesbians, <laughs> but we are gay. <laughs> You know, just broadly speaking. Anyway, for God's sakes, <laughs> none of that business. This is not how these women are gay. <laughs> how gay are they? They're just having a fun cross-dressing no, night No, no, no. It no. doesn't mean that either. It means kind of like morally loose. It's a term that is used to refer to sex workers a lot, like mm-hmm. gay women.
1: I was aware that it had moved from sex work yes. to queer, as so many words do. Yeah,
0: through. which is such an interesting thing. I wish there was more work specifically talking about the intersections between like culture and terminology Mm. and communities of sex workers and queer people yeah so you understand them to be kind of like women of loose morals quote-unquote potentially Mm -hmm. sex workers who are dressed up in men's clothes because they're just that gay not (laughs) queer but you know just that like gay (laughs) and who are out for a night on the town and you believes the theater manager that they're women, Mm
2: -hmm.
0: and is just super fascinated with them, and when they leave the theatre, he follows them to the next pub they go to, which is kind of creepy, frankly, you. Like, speak to them like a human, or leave them alone, Look, he doesn't know how to speak to women. He's a small, stupid boy. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Yeah, well, I mean, it gets worse, because he he follows them to the next pub, and then he just kind of, like, stares at them for 20 minutes, and it's just like, oh my god. What a creepy man. Yeah, he's quite creepy. Like, not to excuse it, but, you know, it is very much just like, oh gosh... Like, I'm so fascinated, they're so beautiful, and that's not an okay thing to do still, but, like, just so we're not worried that he's about to, like, try and kill them or anything. Yeah, he's just a creepy dude. Yeah, like, he's just an ineffective, ineffectual, like, man-child. And they notice that, and they say to him after a while, we think you're following us. And he, in reply, says, I think I am. And then they invite (laughs) him to come over and have drinks with him, and then they have, like, a great night, and have a bunch of sherrys or whatever together they introduce themselves by their birth names but they immediately start calling each other stellar and fanny and you are confused and just sort of follows suit and calls them stellar and fanny they meet up again a few days later and this time they're dressed as women and they give you a letter saying like essentially hey just so you know we're men dressed up as women mm-hmm. and you was like oh that's such a good joke and they're like, no, like, for realsy, though, like, that's what's happening. And he was like, oh, I won't believe it. And they're just like, all right then, mate. And they just, like, keep hanging out.
1: <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah.
0: So Hugh's just convinced
1: that what he first heard is right, and they are... Yeah women who were dressed as men and are now just dressed as women
2: i yes. mean possibly if he spent the whole first night being like oh i'm so attracted to these people he has a lot to deal with if they turn out to be men dressed as women i guess and he doesn't
1: sound like he's really up to dealing with stuff no just like, exactly stuff. <laughs> exactly yeah.
2: like i feel like he might just not be ready to deal with that and he's just like no nope,
0: no nope, they're women for context he's 23 which i don't feel like okay. is that much of an excuse like i'm 24 and i feel like i'm better at, like, being a human person than <laughs> I feel like I can, like, be civilised in a bar. <laughs> um, but in any case, they keep hanging out for a few days. One night, they invite him to meet them at the theater so he shows up and he goes to the private box there and they're not there yet and instead their friend carlotta is there carlotta's turned up a few times now i like carlotta Carlotta. yeah i like carlotta too carlotta will show up a few more times and she seems like solid friend okay Okay. cool cool and you kind of says like oh they're so like fascinating and so unlike anyone i've ever known like what's their deal (laughs) and she's like again tells him so like you know they're men right like that's the situation and he's like look Maybe Fanny is, but I'm not believing it about Stella. It just can't be the case. And I guess Colorado is also like, okay, buddy, (laughs) I'm not touching this. Fanny and Stella show up. They're already drunk. They've been (laughs) pre-drinking. Relatable content. They're pretty obnoxious by the sounds of things. So they like interrupt the play with how much they're like loudly talking and giggling. They're ogling men in the theater and they're smoking, which is very shocking for women to be doing mm-hmm. in public, mm-hmm. and they're, like, waggling their tongues at men who <laughs> <Waggling> <laughs> their they tongue. think are, like, prospects, <laughs> and just kind of, like, generally making themselves known. So, yeah, they watch the play, kind of, I guess, and have a grand old time, presumably, mm-hmm. and afterwards they leave the box, Fanny goes to the bathroom and has the attendant pin up the lace at the back of her dress, and... Then they get in a carriage with you and they go to drive home. Carlotto has not gone to the carriage. She's gone off elsewhere okay, to okay. do whatever Carlotto wishes with her everything.
2: This is, like, completely off topic, but I love the fact that they obviously employed someone to hang out in the bathroom and help you with wardrobe emergencies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's how
0: it was, because yeah. your outfit was ridiculous and... You needed that. You just yeah, needed yeah. someone to hang out and be like, hello, help, I can't, like, fix my own clothes because yeah. there's 17 layers of them. And if I fell over, I wouldn't be able to get up again.
2: It's <laughs> probably true. Like a sheep.
0: <laughs> I'm not sure of sheep?
2: When they get when wet, it rains. What? Because it's because they're wool and they're too heavy. Yeah. Oh, fuck. So when it rains, oh, you'll we screw the... these animals up a little bit on the weather. Sometimes they'll put out like a sheep morning for certain areas, so all the farmers can get their sheep. Oh inside. man, that's very cute. I love sheep. They're
0: great. Hmm. Unbeknownst to Stella and Fanny, and of course to you, who is a disaster, they have been followed... Every
2: time you say it, I think you're saying you in the sense of I feel like I'm reading a
0: reader pick. Because... Yeah, exactly. You meet Stella and Fanny at the theatre. Choose your own adventure. Do you stare at them for 20 minutes, or do you go up to them and be like, Hi, my name's you, can I buy you a drink? <laughs> well, obviously I'll turn to page 33, says you, Mandel. <laughs> Sorry.
2: Anyway. I'm anyway, not, not making fun of your accent.
0: I feel like you can make fun of my accent because it's not like a class thing or anything. I'm just yeah, from a different right. part of the country. <laughs> okay, we're <laughs> making fun of your accent. Yeah. Well, <laughs> one day we'll get another South Australian on this podcast and there'll be nothing you can do about it. Okay. But anyway, yes, unbeknownst to Stella and Fanny and you, they had been...
1: <laughs> I've been, mean, like, not mentioning this the entire time.
2: I'm sorry. I've ruined this episode now.
0: <laughs> you have ruined my very life. I'm going to start the episode again now, please. <laughs> yeah, so, <sorry>. Let's <laughs> begin. From the top. Stella was a sickly child. <laughs> They've been trailed into the theatre by plainclothes policemen. And now that they're leaving, one of them jumps into the carriage after them, says that he suspects them of being, quote, men in female attire, and that he was arresting them. So Hugh is also in this carriage, right? He is, yes. He is not going to be much help. He doesn't know how to deal with, like, any situation. That's true. Yeah. He can't go out to a bar, let alone in front (laughs) of a cop. Yeah, that's true. The policeman's deposition claims that they offered the officers sex in exchange for being let go, but were refused, and they go off to the police station. I wonder if that really happened. Yeah, me too. I I could see it happening. I could see it being made up. Yeah. You know.
2: They were pretty drunk.
0: Yeah, true. I mean, they were also, like, potentially going to die. So. Yeah, Yeah, so you may as well try everything you can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, at the police station, they give their names and addresses, and the policeman asks them why they did this, and they say, "Look, we're really sorry, we just did it for a bit of a lark, it's gotten out of hand, which isn't true. Yeah. Maybe a very long, long. lark. <laughs> yes, yeah. the longest of all larks, And they're taken to a cell and forced to strip. A crowd of policemen comes to watch them strip, basically just because they're such a shocking anomaly that has been arrested this night. Mm-hmm. You, Yu, once they get to the police station, is told that he can go, but he says that he won't. He wants to stay with Stella and Fanny. He wants to make sure they're Okay.
1: What a good man.
0: Yeah, like, he's a good boy. He's just useless. (laughs) But then he refuses to give his name and address, and so they arrest him as well, and he's put in the cell with Stella and Fanny. He is not forced to strip, and they spend the night in the cell. The next morning, they are taken to court for a preliminary hearing. Carlotta, my fave, tried to bring them both a suit to wear, but was turned away, and they said, like, nope, we're going to make them wear the dresses. So they have to put on their dresses from the night before as best they can and try and get themselves looking presentable. A mob has somehow heard about this and gathers outside the courthouse to watch them cross over from the police station into it. Uh, and the courthouse itself is also like packed full of people.
2: How did people learn about this so fast? I don't know. Victorian Twitter. <laughs> I guess they yeah. do have a very effective postal service then. Yeah, you could send mail like three times a day. Yeah, oh, yeah. Right, yeah,
0: yeah. At the hearing, they're accused of buggery, conspiracy to commit buggery and cause others to do so, and also with outraging public decency and corrupting public morals through appearing in public wearing women's clothes. I have to
2: say, conspiracy to commit buggery is just a hilarious phrase to me. Like, you picture these
0: people, like, at a table in a darkened room, plotting to have anal sex. <laughs> <laughs> I know that comment was not jest, but I think that is exactly the type of scenario they're trying to stir up in the public mind. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah. they're
1: picturing specifically... Plotting to lure impressionable young men to have anal sex, probably,
0: if you're talking about the conspiracy side of the charge. Like you. (laughs) God, thanks, guys. (laughs) Anyway, at the hearing, Stella and Fanny also learn that this hasn't been a chance arrest from officers who just happened to see them that night. They learn that they have been trailed for a year. A year? And that for several weeks, there has been a plainclothes policeman outside their house day and night. Why'd they take so long to arrest them? Yeah, like, frankly, they're two civilians. What was the... As soon as you arrest them,
1: like, it's not like they have to prove anything. They can be like, look, she's, he's, whatever the cop is going to say, wearing a dress and has a penis, like...
0: Well, I think the thing about that, though, is that, like, Stella has been arrested wearing women's clothes before, mm-hmm. you know, while she was doing sex work, and, like, not much really tends to come of that. Like, it's a misdemeanor. Okay. okay. Um... Uh, so she was fined once, I believe, but, like, it doesn't really go anywhere overly serious yeah but if they can get up evidence of buggery then they can go to jail for quite a long time okay
1: okay. and
0: a long jail sentence doing hard labor is a death sentence okay so
1: they're trying to kind of get more on them than Hmm. just oh yeah they dress as women
0: and it's possible as well that they're trying to get information on like a network of people
1: oh yeah and like we do know that they were part of a network yes a shadowy
0: network (laughs) (laughs) yes They also learn that the police have raided their home and gone through all of their clothes and picked up all their letters and so forth. Their friend Carlotta has also managed to find a lawyer for them. In this short time. I love Carlotta. Carlotta's so good. Carlotta just gets stuff done. Yeah. She's like, I'm going to have a ball. I'm going to find a lawyer at midnight. You know, like, (laughs) yeah, yeah. she's great. I love her.
1: Yeah. I want to know more about Carlotta. Do you know, like, what her surname is? Like, could we hypothetically research more about Carlotta? Uh, Yeah,
0: I do know what her legal name was.
1: Okay, so we could find out more. Yes.
0: Okay. We can give it a go if you like. The lawyer that Carlotta provided is also under the impression, as Carlotta was, as Star and Fanny were, that this had just been a chance arrest.
1: Oh, yeah. And so he's
0: not really prepared to defend them from this evidence that comes out that this isn't just like something they did one night for a joke mm-hmm. or anything like that, but it's been a habitual part of their life for at least a year. And so the decision is, well, no, you have to stay in jail and we're going to take this to a proper trial. They are then taken to a back room of the courthouse where three policemen and a doctor are waiting for them. They, in that room, are subjected to a quote-unquote medical examination that is unnecessary and invasive and qualifies as sexual assault. If you don't want to hear that, we want for it at the top of the podcast, but i want for it again. Feel free to skip ahead a bit or stop listening now. I found this stuff really... really uncomfortable I thought it was awful in the room they are ordered to undress step behind a screen bend over a stool and then their anuses are examined and the doctor inserts fingers into them The doctor's deposition said that neither of them offered any resistance, although he also said that they were told that if they didn't comply, quote, force would be used. So you can imagine that this is going to be very frightening and humiliating and invasive for these two people. The reason for this is that the medical establishment at the time has this kind of ongoing interest in the physicality of men who had anal sex with other men. So, sodomites, as they would call them, but, like, that's a terrible word. (laughs) And the police in this case are interested in utilising this particular area of medicine to prosecute Fanny and Stella. So, the doctor is Dr. James Thomas Paul, which are all first names. (laughs) Get a surname, James God. Dr. James Thomas Paul was a doctor who worked for the police, so he'd look after officers and prisoners Mm -hmm. in that area. As a student he had studied under Dr. Alfred Swang Taylor, who is the father of modern forensics, mm-hmm. uh and I guess must have had some valuable stuff to say about medicine, but this isn't it. And he in his work had discussed cases of again what he called sodomites with deformed rectums. So in examining one such person, he wrote, quote, The state of the rectum left no doubt of the abominable practices to which this individual had been addicted. It was noticed by all present that the aperture of the anus was much wider and larger than natural. The rugae or folds of skin which gave the pocket appearance to the anal aperture had quite disappeared. So obviously, like, this isn't real. This doesn't happen to a human body. So they're interested in finding such physical evidence on the bodies of Stella and Fanny.
1: Like, what the hell is that, frankly?
0: Yeah, it's completely not based in fact and based on, like, crazy misguided homophobia and transphobia. Both Stella and Fanny are examined by Dr. Paul, and he testifies in court that the same evidence is found on their bodies, that their anuses are very slack and easy to insert objects into, and that the folds are very large and rough.
1: I hate
0: Dr. Paul. I hate Dr. Paul, too. He clarifies that this could be caused by the insertion of a man's person. He also adds, furthermore, that their penises were elongated and misshapen. So contemporary medical discourse also understood that the penises of men, as they understood them, who had anal sex with other men, were deformed by the i don't know sheer intense perversity of penetrating an anus i guess and were therefore made monstrous in some proportion again obviously this doesn't happen And I know that no one thinks that, but I just feel like it's necessary to very thoroughly be like, this is all complete quack science and it's disgusting. Yeah, Yeah, look, having anal sex doesn't physically turn you into, yeah, a monster monster, and it doesn't deform your body and done right, it is safe and good. So, like, go forth (laughs) if you want, I don't know. (laughs) Anyhow, so they return to jail for a week. And then they come to trial again. During this week the newspapers are full of stories about them, calling them things such as the young men personating women. Apparently impersonating isn't the thing, it's personating. I don't look into that any further. The hermaphrodite gang and the funny <laughs> he she ladies, which are all like really awful terms. They
2: are like quite awful, but the hermaphrodite gang, like... You just like that the word gang is there, don't
0: you? It's a bit like the conspiracy to buggery. It just has this weird sense about it, which is... Moral panic of like a shadowy network of sodomites who are going to seduce the young men of England and destroy their <laughs> penises, I guess. Yeah. So they go back to court and this time they appear in suits. Members of the public queued for hours to get into the court and are, like peering from every possible vantage point. But this time, it includes some of their friends or just like fellow queer people who have heard that this is going on. And this contingent loudly reacts to the proceedings and is just kind of like vocally supportive of Fanny and Stella or like booze stuff that Aww. they don't like. They're told to restrain themselves. They do not. <laughs> oh, good friends. We're not a people known for restraining ourselves. <laughs> So a lot of the testimony that goes on is testimony that we've been referring to throughout this episode, so I'm not mm. going to run through it in a particularly exhaustive way, just mention a few things that are interesting. So one interesting witness is George Smith, who is a former police officer, so good start, and Beetle of the Burlington Arcade, which sounds like something from a children's novel, but is like he's much worse than that. What uh,
1: word did you say?
0: Beetle. <laughs> you know, no, like know. in Sweeney Todd. <laughs> it's like, sort of like small time law enforcement like down from the police oh okay so okay. like he's like maybe kind of like a security guard type thing like he looks after this arcade and he makes sure that nothing that shouldn't be happening is happening there. okay okay allegedly stella made a pass at him and he threw her and her friend out of the arcade he was also meant to throw out any sex workers who were there so not only stella but also like cisgender female sex workers or whoever was there because they were kind of seen as like bringing down the tone of the place i guess yeah, yeah um and sometimes he does and sometimes he doesn't throw them out because he's fired for accepting tips from quote some of the gay ladies who patronize the arcade so there's that word gay
1: yeah being used mm-hmm.
0: in that sense again yeah he like quite openly admitted that he did this he's essentially like taking bribes
2: Okay. It was possibly just, like, a standard thing
0: that... I mean, I'm sure it happened, is, yeah. but I'm, I'm sure that, like, you're, it's also not meant to... You're meant to lie about you're it. You're meant to lie about it, yeah.
1: yeah. If I was breaking the law in, like, a very standard and accepted way, I still wouldn't admit that in
0: court. Mm. Not only did he admit that he was being bribed but he was drunk at the trial, and <laughs> he also let slip that he'd been getting up evidence for the police for four days before the arrest. That phrase kind of suggests that he's fabricating evidence for the police. Sorry. He's ruining their case, essentially. Yeah, he's trashing their case because yeah, it's he's trying. even worse than you at, like, being a functional human person. He later tries to go back on that and say, like, no, 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 that's not the date. I, I wasn't doing it then. But, like, you said it. He also mentions that he was paid to appear in court, which also seems like something you probably shouldn't have mentioned. (laughs) And he's just kind of a bit of a disaster. (laughs) The prosecuting attorney also goes through a long list of dresses and so forth that had been found in their home. So Uh he literally is, like, red chul, blue velvet, and just kind of, like, (laughs) reads this massive list out, which is quite comical to me. Does he, like, have them in the courtroom? Not all of them, I think, but he does kind of, like, parade some items of clothing around. Interestingly... In amongst all of this, like, feminine attire, there's this, like, big fake grey beard (laughs) that gets mentioned a few times. And I just found that funny.
2: I mean, the big fake grey beard is probably a convincing, like... Piece of evidence in their
0: defence. If then they can just be like, "Look, we had a bunch of theatre props and costumes in our room." Sometimes they yeah. dress as an old man. Well, <laughs> someone for the defence kind of said, "Well, that can hardly be like included as evidence for them impersonating women." And the prosecuting attorney says, "But it is evidence that they are trying to deceive."
1: It's
0: so <laughs> their job. <laughs> yes. And Neil McKenna actually has a quite interesting section here where he talks about, like, possible ways that trans feminine people, anyone assigned male at birth who wanted to get women's clothing, could go about doing so at this time. Okay. So, obviously, as we've alluded to, the wardrobe of women at this time was huge. Yeah. This involved a lot of very complicated stuff. and. A lot of these garments are very difficult for people assigned male at birth to acquire. Again, this is something that Neil doesn't really give a source for, but I think that a lot of it is just quite logical, and I was fine with it. So he says, you know, some of it could have been purchased while they're in drag, just kind of hoping that they are convincing enough to convince shopkeepers that they are cisgender women. Mm -hmm. Others could have been bought at costume stores, perhaps especially things like gloves and shoes, which were difficult to get in sizes uh, that they would have needed. They could have also had things custom made or at least altered because there were a million seamstresses in London and they were often very poor and couldn't afford to be too picky Mm -hmm. about what work they took on or ask too many questions. And then there's also secondhand shops and patterns and so forth. Stella and Fanny would do each other's hair, which sounds nice.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: I wonder about how they learn how to do hair,
2: given that everyone I know who can do anything complicated with hair learn from YouTube, magazines, YouTube I think yeah. The yeah, magazines, yeah, magazines. So. Also,
0: like they're you know they're in theater circles, and so possibly oh, yeah, that's true. Through mm, that. Yeah. But also just like a lot of trial and error. Like I didn't have a computer in my house until I was in my teens, and there was definitely a lot of like just
2: figuring it out i don't know
0: like you got time on your hands you don't have a job yet you just kind of like sit around being like Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> they would also actually sometimes have a hairdresser come to their house so this was a thing that victorian women did they would have yeah. the hairdresser come to them do their hair for a thing they were wearing out to because their hair pieces were very elaborate and needed professional help we also know that they used large quantities of wadding so just like misc material i guess in order to create the appearance of breasts
1: i mean like cisgender women in the victorian era definitely did this too yeah, yeah well
0: there's yeah. various means by which to do this maybe stella and fanny employed some of these methods so for example the registered bust improver was patented <laughs> in 1849 which was airproof inflatable material uh-huh. <laughs> which you put in your <laughs> cool. undergarments. garments yeah
1: i was aware of people just using like padded material and also using like wire kind of mm. yeah but i didn't know that they had inflatable ones. yeah they
0: did french sex workers assigned male at birth but who dressed as women whilst working would also use the trick of inflating boiled sheep's lungs
1: <gasps> oh that's gross
0: <laughs> that is disgusting yeah.
1: why would you not just use material why would you use if you're like you could like Your socks socks down your top. Or you could shove a sheep's lung down your top. Yeah, I guess the idea might
0: be that, especially if you're a sex worker, someone whilst you were wearing whatever you're using to pad your bra, or like bra, whatever, at that time, might actually try and feel your breasts. And a sheep's lung, I guess, feels more like a human breast than some fabric. (laughs) Like, I agree that putting a sheep's organ down your shirt is kind of gross, Alice. Um... (laughs) Hopefully they had a layer between skin and sheep. Oh, I like. assuming
2: they like wrapped it up.
0: Yeah. I mean, you'd need something to like kind of hold it in place. Yeah. 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 Um, you're not just going to like just drop a down your shirt and hope for the best. But anyway, we have a quote from a doctor who perhaps treated these sex workers. I'm like not sure how he came past this quote, but it was funny. So I'm going to include it. Saying, quote, one of the prostitutes complained to me the other day that a cat had eaten one of his breasts. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops.
2: I was kind of picturing them, like, getting home at the end of the day and frying up their boobs for dinner. (laughs) Anyway.
0: So now we need to go back to the invasive medical exams. Whilst their trial is going on, they're kept at Newgate Jail, and they're kept in solitary confinement so as not to infect the other prisoners. After Dr. Paul's examination, the defence had had another doctor examine them, and that doctor said that there was no evidence of sodomy on their bodies at all. It's
1: so, almost like the evidence of sodomy thing was fake.
0: Yes. The result of this is the decision that there has to be a quote-unquote impartial examination, you know, so another examination will be performed and it's going to be one that we can all agree on. So for this one, six doctors are present, four prison wardens, <laughs> three detectives, two medical orderlies, a solicitor, and a man from the treasury demand for from the, the treasury. treasury he's there to represent the government okay, okay. who has an official interest in this mm. and again i just like to reiterate how frightening it would be to be in your 20s and be held in solitary confinement in prison and then to be brought into a room full of a whole like, host of men. nearly 20 people and forced to strip and so forth so they both lay down on couches they're naked, they're covered with sheets. It's mentioned that like the men brought a magnifying glass and they a speculum and it's like a whole thing. The medical examination goes for over two hours. What? Yep. With the six doctors all repeatedly inserting their fingers into the prisoner's anuses, which aside from how like mentally taxing this would have been, I assume after two hours this was also quite physically painful. Five of the six doctors conclude that there is no proof of sodomy on their bodies, okay. which is true, I guess, because that's not how the law Bodies works. are. Yeah. It's worth noting that at least officially the doctors hadn't actually been able to examine the anuses of that many men who had sex with men. The official line at the time is that anal sex doesn't really happen in Britain. That's more of a French thing. <laughs> of course it is. Especially not men being penetrated anally. T- no, not something that the British would do. So, of course, even if they have had patients who have admitted to this, which is unlikely, mm-hmm. um, it's not something that they're going to say, oh, yeah, I've seen the anuses of a hundred men yeah. who've been anally yeah. penetrated. Like, it's just not. That's not the British image. Yes. It's also considered that they can't really disagree because this undermines medical authority on this matter. So if six eminent doctors mm-hmm. examine Stella and Fanny and say, well, three of us think this and three of us think that, the whole authority of the medical profession to be knowledgeable about this matter and to make judgments on it is undermined. Yeah. 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 So you might remember Stella's husband, Arthur, mm-hmm. who has not been mentioned for some time. Are they still married? Uh, that's a complicated question to answer so the deal is that he kind of disappears at a certain point from neil's book until Mm -hmm. he's comes up again at the trial and the reason he gives for this is that arthur and fanny have a one night stand together and that stella then is very angry at them and breaks up contact with both of them eventually reconciles with fanny but doesn't seem to reconcile with arthur the evidence for this i think is just that one of the maids at the boarding house mentioned seeing Fanny sleeping in Arthur's bed but i feel like that's not enough of it no so I, I don't really know if they're like what their deal is they seem to not be together anymore but like why since when you know after stella and fanny are arrested it takes five weeks for the warrant for arthur's arrest to be given this is presumably because he is a lord and therefore has connections mm-hmm. so the then prime minister was his godfather
1: oh wow. so like,
0: connections and when the warrant for his arrest is given he flees england reports of his death soon appear in the newspapers, generally stating that he died of scarlet fever, but given the timing, we have to consider the possibility that he committed suicide, and his funeral is held shortly after. Okay. There are, however, rumours for years afterwards that he has been spotted in various places and that he had faked his own death. That doesn't seem particularly likely to me, but Neil McKenna spends a while on it.
1: I mean, if it's he's possible, running away from scandal, it could maybe. have happened.
0: But in any case, he's never really heard from again. Just one example of... The mentions of him faking his own death in 1879. The Clarence and Richmond Examiner and New South Wales Advertiser says that he's been hiding in Australia for eight years to oblige his family. <laughs> hey Arthur! So maybe he Is here. lived hey. out his life here and we are his descendants. Maybe we are. We just don't know. Are there any like, relatives in your family with the of Clinton? I mean, he would have changed it, so we'd never know.
1: Yeah, he could be in this room. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm really frightened to know. <laughs> He's under the desk. (laughs) He's in your very nightmares. (laughs) Anyway. He seemed like a nice guy. He was fine, whatever.
1: Yeah, he He doesn't
0: scare me. I guess he also might have been like, My life is pretty over now, and also I do have all of those debts. (laughs) So time to move to Australia! Yeah. In July of 1870, the Attorney General has Stella and Fanny let out on bail, and for a year it seems like the trial is just never going to continue. During this time, Stella and Fanny disappear from the public eye and we don't really know what they're doing. However, they are eventually called back to court. They get a better solicitor this time, or at least a solicitor who has more time to prepare, which is George Lewis, and he is quite savvy. He has a very deft hand at turning around scandals. So Stella and Fanny come to the court having put on the appearance of being serious young men. So they have grown facial hair, and the defence also constantly refers to them as youths and boys, really emphasising how young they are. The Attorney General gives an opening speech stating that The popular understanding is that a crime has been committed and their job is to ascertain whether this is true. He hopes that they're going to be able to decide in the negative, not because he's protective of Fanny and Stella or he thinks they haven't done anything wrong or anything like that, but because Mm -hmm. he hopes that what they have come to represent, which is that, you know, sodomy is rife in the motherland, (laughs) is not true. So we've actually kind of gone over the bulk of what goes on in this trial. So again, various witnesses give testimony, such as Della's mother and Yumandel. their clothes are displayed to the court. But none of this is particularly troubling for the defense. So first of all, with Yumandel for example, obviously he can testify that, yep, they did go around wearing women's clothes Mm -hmm. and so forth. But he also very adamantly says that he didn't have sex with them and also testifies that they repeatedly told him that they were men. I mean, he actually has a letter that says this, doesn't he? Yeah, I don't know where that ended up, but yeah. And as I've mentioned, Stella's mother puts a face of respectability on the pair. Also, like, with their clothes being brought out and letters uh, that they'd written being read out and so forth, like, these are full of feminine terms and they're like very affectionate with each other and so forth. But there's no like details of all of the sex they're having in these letters, mm. and it's been going on for over a year now. You know, the public's had time to get bored of that, and they want the details of like dirty, deviant sex that's been promised to them, and it just isn't forthcoming. Yeah, it's also a matter where the beetle is there and he is still (laughs) an unconvincing mess. And so the prosecution looks increasingly corrupt. The familiar evidence of how, you know, their bodies show signs of sodomy Mm -hmm. uh, comes up. And Dr. Paul in the courtroom has in his pocket a book that is one of the sort of influential medical texts of the time that goes over this being a thing mm-hmm. you know that yeah. talks about the signs you can find on people's bodies and so forth and he's asked about it and asked about when he read it and what his interest was in it and so forth and he kind of refuses to give a straight answer like he sort of indicates that he was reading it before they were arrested and then tries to go back on it and so forth and it kind of ends up with the impression that he has been kind of like preparing what to say about their bodies yeah. in oh, order to I help see. get them convicted. He's also criticised by the defence for having no right to examine the prisoners, as uh, so he had done, basically saying, you know, this is no different than if you took any random man off the street and said, I have a right to make you strip naked and be examined in that I like. I'm glad that that was brought up and that people were like, no, that was way out of line. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's also said, you know, they should have had the right to have a doctor of their choosing present, to intervene in this matter. You did not give them that right. And it's explicitly said by the Attorney General to the jury that the conduct of Dr. Paul was inappropriate and that they shouldn't pay any attention to his
2: medical advice. Okay. And that's
0: kind of thrown out of the case. Good riddance. So ridden. if what this court case is doing, one of the things it's doing is kind of testing how medical discourse can interact with the law in terms of prosecuting queer people, mm-hmm. the answer that seems to come out of it is actually – it's not very influential and it can't really be used in court to this effect. And this is really the only court case like this that I'm aware of. So for example, this isn't something that comes up in the Oscar trials, this kind mm-hmm. of like medical evidence, and I'm not aware of it really coming up habitually in other such trials from this point forward. Mm-hmm. The jury deliberate for only an hour after hearing all of this evidence and then they find them not guilty on all counts. Stella faints Aww, and the crowd still... erupts into cheers.
1: Aww, Aww, oh that was so nice. Aww.
0: I'm scared. No, it's fine. fine. Is that it? That's kind of it. Oh. So we don't actually know a lot about their lives after the trials. Again, you know, most of the reason why we know them is because of this trial and it's over. Two months after it, Stella advertises in the paper for an actor to play the leading man to her heroine in plays. And she finds a guy called Lewis Monroe and they act in some plays together.
1: I like that she's still, like, performing as a woman on stage, like...
0: Yeah, and she continues to, like, sometimes be quite well-received and sometimes not so well-received. Once when they're touring around together, a riot breaks out mm-hmm. and they have to flee, and eventually mm-hmm. they part ways and she continues to tour with her brother instead, acting. Oh, I like it. I mentioned right at the top of the podcast that Fanny had a brother, Harry, who was mm-hmm. also queer, and that we know that because he was implicated in a trial of his own.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: So he fled off to a remote part of Scotland – and was living there for several years. And during Fanny and Stella's trial, he basically got dug up by the police. And he serves a prison sentence. He's released from prison in July of 1871. And Harry and Fanny go to America together, so they leave England behind. And she also keeps acting, doing small parts, generally dressed as a woman.
1: I like that she has a queer brother and they can just be like, let's just
0: leave England together. Yeah, let's presumably just... they were like, we're done with this place. Let's yeah. Go. Yeah. At the end of 1873, Stella also goes to America. Uh, She changes her stage name there from using her legal name to the name Ernest Vine, possibly because she's sick of the notoriety of always being Stella from that trial. Yeah. Not Stella from that trial, but, you know. Being from that trial. Yeah. Yeah. And they, you know, they act in New York. Do you know if they They meet up again in America? McKenna says they do, but I don't actually have any proof of it. (laughs) People continue to say, oh, my God, you know, like Stella's so good at acting and I can't believe that She's not quote-unquote really a woman and so forth. So things kind of continue much as they been in her career before the trial. But that's really all we know about the rest of their lives. In 1881, Fanny passes away. She's been unwell for quite some time, being cared for by a watchmaker and his wife. The death certificate Mm -hmm. doesn't have a cause, which potentially means that it was syphilis. She was 34 years old. Oh, she's so young. Yeah, she was very young. Harry had also passed away a few years earlier. She is laid to rest beside him. Stella and her brother changed their surname to Blair and tour for 22 years together as the Brothers Blair. They're never, like, famous actors, but, you know, they have, like, steady work some of the time. Yeah. And that's how they make their living. In 1903, she falls ill and she dies a year later at the age of 54. Mm -hmm. We can return now to the question, if we like... Mm -hmm. of what exactly their gender identity is I don't feel like I have an awful lot more to say than I did at the start you know obviously there's some stuff that you could use as evidence for them being trans women such as using female names and presenting as women Mm -hmm. in their personal Mm -hmm. lives and the marriage between Stella and Arthur and so forth but I you know do feel like those restrictions on not having really anything from their points of view and so forth have an effect here and Yeah, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: I think one thing to consider is the level of risk that was associated with them dressing as women and Mm. you know presenting as women and you know being a part of this queer scene and everything like why would they take this risk I think is a question you have to ask.
0: The way it's generally presented by Neil McKenna is that they were just gay men Mm. for whom this feminine identity and kind of feminine presentation and so forth was still very very important but that they're not women that they're gay men and this is a gay man thing and like sure you know like i don't have personal experience of that but like obviously that's a thing that exists like even today this has fairly direct correlations and Neil mckenna does seem to kind of make those correlations yeah
1: like you absolutely can be a gay man who's just more comfortable in traditionally feminine clothing and that doesn't yeah and
0: like it's still fairly common in some corners of the gay male scene today to refer to each other by feminine nicknames and by she her pronouns Mm -hmm. and so forth like that's not an unthinkable thing for them to be two gay men who identified as men but for whom this was just how their social circle worked
1: In other articles talking about them, do they bring up the possibility that they were transgender or do they just kind of be like, these were gay men dressed as women?
0: Yeah. So it's just not something that's really been explored in scholarship. I'm not going to claim that I've seen every source in which they're discussed, but I did not see a single mention that there might be trans women. Anyway. Okay. So breaking ground tonight on (laughs) (laughs) JerezFact.
1: Like, I can't think of any solid evidence that
0: they're not trans women, frankly. I think... Like, the reason why people tend to fall down on the side of them being gay men is just because that's seen as being, like, inherently more believable than them being trans women.
1: I guess it's like, unless we have clear evidence that they mm. were trans, when one of them has written down, I am
2: a woman. But even then, like, yeah, like they have discussed- effectively said that. I remember us discussing this when we had Paulie Murray, who wrote a bunch about wanting to transition mm. and yeah. being a man. And,
0: people, and were like, people were like, so this obvious lesbian. Yeah, so
2: this is a lesbian and... <laughs> And you're disrespecting the community if you call them a trans man. I feel especially like there are certain periods of history or certain contexts in which that like gender and sexual attraction were seen as much more linked than we see them now.
0: It is certainly the case that in the Victorian period, the discourse at the time about deviant sexuality and especially about homosexuality link it to gender and visualize it especially as undermining the sex and gender binaries. So for example, the English Woman's domestic magazine wrote, There is not the slightest doubt that England is hastening towards the border which divides the sexes. Already persons have overstepped it and stand alone, hated and despised. So oh, this but they undermining... did stand alone, hated and despised. All their friends came to court to cheer for them. Yeah, well, the English Woman's Domestic Magazine doesn't know about that, doesn't he? <laughs> really. But yeah, like, it's something that is an anxiety at the time that the boundary between the sexes is being eroded. Also, interestingly, you know, we've discussed how the bodies of... People sign male at birth who have sex with other men are visualized mm-hmm. uh, in the medical discourse at the time. And Dr. Alfred Swain Taylor, who we've mentioned previously, in that examination that I quoted from about you know all that ludicrous stuff about the anus being huge and the folds having disappeared and so forth. Yeah concludes that examination saying that this part resembled the labia of the female organs. Oh, Uh what? Okay. And Neil McKenna recognises this as well, saying that uh, the patient in that case had, quote, by the mysterious alchemy of sodomy effectively become a woman. (laughs) Neil McKenna's writing is like a lot of fun. Like it really genuinely is. Specifically regarding Fanny and Stella, there's some interesting stuff where McKenna writes about Dr. Johnson, one of the six doctors who examined them, marveling over how feminine their bodies are and concluding that, quote, there could be no doubt that such practices long adhered to, long indulged in, might very well lend a permanent air of womanliness to any young man. And that's like part of why I'm really frustrated with his lack of citing is if this is something that this person actually noted in like a trial record or something, Mm -hmm. that's really significant. But it could also be flavour text.
2: I am sort of thinking a little bit. We've had a lot of discussions before about the sort of societal shift we've had in the last probably hundred years from conceptualising like same-sex, I was going to say same-sex sex, sex, (laughs) This problem. (laughs) Yeah, this problem. Previously it's been treated as like something you do. Mm -hmm. Yeah and now we've taken it on as this sort of identity and it sort of feels like the society is in that kind of weird middle zone with gender they can't decide whether it's inherent or mutable
1: yeah yeah no, that's
0: interesting oh god there's yeah. so much scholarship to do here
1: if you believe gender is inherent and it's tied to your physical form yeah,
0: which it objectively isn't
1: which I mean, like too. that's not how gender is yeah, yeah we, know, we know that <laughs> But at the same time, they believe that doing feminine acts—if you consider male-male sex—to be a feminine act. Mm. You can tell I've read about Rome too much. (laughs) (laughs) Doing feminine acts makes your body more
2: physically feminine. It's like they kind of have it in a—I think it's just like reversed way where. We think of that kind of like biological essentialism as your body makes your gender And they're like, oh no, no no, if you did enough feminine things, your, your body gender would go and makes fit. your
0: body yeah yeah
1: yeah um, yeah. And so what do they actually think comes first? Do they think that some quote unquote men, were inherently in their mind somehow feminine so they started dressing as women and sleeping with men and then their bodies also became feminine or like how did they conceptualize this
0: i mean i guess like from what i read it seems to be that they understood this as like a vice that you indulged in but eventually Mm. it just fundamentally changed you and Mm. that's why there's so much fear that you know good upstanding young english men will get involved because they can change this way
1: so i guess the thought there has to be then that like everyone is potentially susceptible to this like a good upstanding young man could be lured into this vice and feminized by it it's not that they were necessarily already inherently feminine
0: i mean yeah i think it's the kind of thing where like if you sat down and spent a lot of time on this you could probably find a number of conflicting discourses on it. Mm. interestingly there's a lot of struggle in the court over what pronouns should be used. So the original transcripts are filled with someone writing down he and then like, crossing it out and writing she and mm-hmm, things like that, and they just mm-hmm. don't know what to use. And the Daily Telegraph and the Illustrated London News both decide when they write their articles about it to use she, stating that although that they know Fanny and Stella are men, she was nevertheless the predominant pronoun used in court and therefore seems the best one to use. And uh-huh. you see this like time and time again with people noting that like even when they quote-unquote know Fanny and Stella are men – They just can't believe it, and they still continue to believe that they're women. And so, you know, regardless of how they identify, in the eyes of their society, they've become women.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And
0: so, like, it's kind of aside the point of how they identify, like, this is trans history. So the point I kind of wanted to end on was on... How I think it's really important to consider this as a part of trans history, in addition mm-hmm. to being a part of gay history, because there's aspects to the story that I think become more interesting or at least differently interesting when considered in that light. So I wanted to bring up two examples of things that I think are interesting because they explicitly evoke either modern discourse about trans people or they evoke conversations we've seen come up elsewhere when we talk about trans history. Mm-hmm. So, for example, there's several mentions throughout Neil McKenna's text, both from him and seemingly from primary sources, mm-hmm. that there might be some kind of biological reason for their femininity. So specifically, kind of being like, maybe they're intersex. And this is something that we've seen come up before, and indeed that you do see come up quite often with transhistorical figures. So Pauline Murray, for example you can go and listen to our two-part episode on him, but, you know, strongly identified as a man and thought that there must be somewhere in his abdomen testicles causing this feeling. There had to be a biological underlying reason that gave validity to his mm-hmm. feelings. We also, in the episode of Michael Dillon, talked about a trans woman he knew called Roberta Cow, and she wrote a autobiography in which she lied and said that she was intersex as a way to validate her own trans identity. Mm-hmm. So this is like a through line in yeah. trans experiences yeah. of the last century. And I think that we're kind of like missing out on a bunch of examples of that, probably by considering stuff like Fanny and Stella to be nothing to do with trans people. Yeah, Throughout the court case, they're framed as being deceptive and because of this deception malicious. And this is also an attitude that we... Unfortunately, often see today regarding trans women. Uh, And I think the best example of this is the public reaction to Fanny using the women's restroom the night that she was arrested. A penny pamphlet that was published shortly after they went to trial lingered over this as the most offensive detail of the entire case, stating that if a man can, quote, by assuming feminine garb, enforce his way with impunity into the chambers set apart for our country women, then we call upon law and justice to aid us in exposing these outrages on decency.
1: That was written by a transphobic person yesterday on Twitter.
0: Yes. True, it was. It's almost shockingly modern, and I feel like unless you're kind of thinking of this as a part of trans history, potentially, you wouldn't focus on that at all. I feel like it's kind of like, unless it's unbelievable that they could be gay men, we're not going to consider a possibility. And I don't think there is a point at which, like, there's a clear like particular set of behaviors or way of talking about yourself that is unique at this time to like queer men or trans women and people and so my point with this one is less like hey i think they're trans women and i want to like reclaim them from gay men and their history and more just that we We need to start incorporating Trans history, just kind of into gay history. You know, we need to kind of be like, hey. So with a lot of individuals, we're not really going to be able to draw a line in the sand there. And I just wanted to further add on to that that when trans history is acknowledged as like existing, it's often articulated as being subsumed into or being like a footnote to gay history. Mm -hmm. So like maybe a trans person existed in the nineteenth century, but they're completely indistinguishable from gay people, and their culture is really just gay culture at that point and so they're not really that much worth talking about we don't really have to shift the discourse too much Mm -hmm. and so forth and i think from the few brief examples that we've just gone through it should be reasonably clear that if we were inclined to and we're not it would be just as easy to construct it the other way around and say well like gay history doesn't really exist it's just a part of trans history yeah
1: yeah especially for example in the victorian era when like cross-dressing was such a big part of queer culture I also think it's just important to emphasize that considering it as a part of trans history doesn't mean it's not also a part of gay history and vice versa and neither group needs to claim these people at the exclusion of all others
0: yeah yeah i was hoping with this episode to do something a little different than we've done with our other trans episodes because we've had a few episodes now where we sit down and we go through point by point about why this person might be trans and why arguments that they're not are transphobic yeah. and so forth and that's still something we're going to continue to do in the future but i was hoping to kind of try and expand our conversation a little bit and with that we have been queer as fact i'm eli i'm irene i'm alice if such a thing would please you. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr as Curious Fact. You can also email us directly at QueriesFact at gmail.com. You can find more of our episodes on Podbean, iTunes, or your podcast. App or site of choice. If you do listen to us on iTunes, especially, we would really appreciate it if you could give us a review and/or a rating out of five stars. It really helps us to reach a wider audience and to find new listeners. And if you can't do that, or you can't be bothered doing that, which is pretty much my feelings on every podcast we've ever listened to, no matter how much I love it. So fair, no judgment. We'd really (laughs) appreciate it if you would mention to any cool queer friends that you have that you've been listening to this great podcast lately, (laughs) because obviously that also helps us find a wider audience. For a while there, we were reading out our reviews on this podcast at the end, and we kind of lost track of it for various reasons but i've decided that we're doing it again so we're gonna read a couple of our reviews now if you're like hey i reviewed you and i wanted to hear you read my review out but it happened during that hiatus well we'll work back don't worry we don't get that many reviews we've got <laughs> time the first review that I have to read to you is from S underscore Manila from Canada. Hello, S underscore Manila from Canada. And it is titled I Would Cry If They Went Away, and it's five stars. Aww. Aww. Haven't you missed us doing this section? <laughs> yes. Really it's for us, not them. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah, Dear queer is fact. We've never had a review started that way before, and yeah. it excited me like a great deal. It's very formal, I like it. Quite simply, you're the best. Every time I see that a new episode is released, I jump for joy at the chance to hear my favourite band of podcasting Aussies talk about queer history. I love the banter, the conversational digressions, the callbacks to previous episodes, and the genuinely good and thoughtful research. First of all, I didn't think anyone liked the digressions, and I didn't know anyone noticed the callbacks, so yay! Thank you so much. <laughs> I feel like we have a bi-weekly friend date scheduled, and wouldn't know what I'd do without it. S underscore Manila, I love you. And we, we're friends now, okay? It's true. We are. We all do three have of us. a bi friend we date. We do. We're on our friend date now. We'll be on it again in two weeks. I love this person so much. I cry. Okay. I've passed on your podcast to as many folks who'll listen, which hopefully they have. Don't know why it's taken me this long to review when I've been a diehard listener since a few episodes in, but here it is. Oh, wow. We've been friends for so long. (laughs) i don't mean another joke (laughs) i hope i've typed enough keywords for the itunes seo cool great awesome thoughtful interesting wonderful fun accessible fun cute engaging love from canada oh that was so sweet that That was very good thank you so much and love from australia okay the next one It's shorter. It made me laugh a lot. So it's from Apple Apple Eater via Apple Podcast USA. And it's headed I Love This Podcast, five stars, and it reads Good, 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 Please do Alexander Hamilton. Good good good.
2: We're
0: going to do Alexander Hamilton. I don't know when. This probably bonded up the list a bit. I'll think about you and I too. Or whoever
1: does it. Apple, Apple, Apple.
0: Yeah. I'll be like researching Alexander Hamilton. And I'll be like, why am I craving an apple? <laughs> 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 so thank you for that. It made my day. I left on the train. <laughs>
1: Lastly, we have a very exciting announcement for something coming up in the next few months. In May, we'll be releasing an interview with award-winning author Heather Jacks, who's about to publish Sister Stories, a book of photos and interviews with the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. We'll also be joined by Sister Roma, who's been a member of the Sisters for 30 years. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence are an order of queer nuns formed in San Francisco in 1979, who have now spread across the world. They do a lot of charity work, largely for the queer community, and use drag and street performance and protests to raise awareness of issues faced by queer people. We're very excited to be talking to Heather and Sister Roma, and we'd love for you to be part of that conversation as well. We'll post some stuff about Heather's book and the sisters on our social media. And if you have any questions you'd like us to ask Heather or Sister Roma, please send them to us via email or via our social media. We'll be back on the 15th of March when I'll be talking about the drag queen and activist Marsha P. Johnson. Thanks for listening and we'll see you then.